0: Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number one sixty one, I believe. That's right. Yep, one sixty one. That's good. It is That's
1: pretty uh, good. I mean, we don't know yet.
0: That is a fair point. Yeah. Um, it is February eleventh. You it? are that it is. You are Dr. Heather Hyang. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein.
1: Wait, you're not using our credentials to sneak some sciencey stuff in and confuse people, are you?
0: I hadn't decided yet, but no, that Mm -hmm. was not my intent on uh, revealing that we have a credential or two. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I'll just say I don't believe in these credentials. It happens that your credential and my credential do mean something, but the fact of having one doesn't mean much at all. That's something that...
1: uh, It's a distinction that seems lost in a lot of people.
0: ...readily apparent inside uh, the Academy. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I will say, before we get to any of that, though... Yes. uh, ...I am super excited
1: Are you? Yes. About February 11th?
0: Exactly.
1: Number 161?
0: What about? No, about February 11th. Okay. Because, uh, unless my calculations are incorrect. Which they might be. I don't think they are. Okay. I don't think they are. I think in this case, I've just, uh, I've nailed it. We are more than halfway through winter, no matter how you measure that. Whether you Mm. measure uh, from the winter solstice to the spring equinox.
1: Well, no. If you measure it from... If you if you measure the winter solstice as midwinter,
0: that's my then well,
1: you're then it's not winter anymore. That's spring. Wait a second.
0: Hold on, hold on. You may have got me here. Yeah. Uh, suffice it to say, in the worst <laughs> case, in the worst case scenario, we are yep. now halfway through the winter of uh, twenty
1: the northern hemisphere of 2023 that began in 2020
0: yeah and as somebody who has um this is
1: fascinating closet
0: prepper instincts the thing about being halfway through winter is oh you although, think you're closeted <laughs> it's it's one of those uh closets that you build into a room that doesn't have a deep when it's not a real hidden yeah. closet but mm-hmm. yeah. um but yeah i'm a, a slightly closeted prepper type um Mm-hmm. The halfway mark through winter is actually a big deal because yeah. it means that if things were to go haywire in a way that would require your prepping and would reveal all of the ways in which you had not gotten all the way to fully prepped, um, the chances that you could uh, cobble your way through what remains are all the greater. So,
1: yeah, I mean, for instance, we don't we don't live in a place that's all that cold. Although it gets plenty cold and it snows and everything, but uh, we definitely have enough sun. Sun wood <laughs> to get us through, to get us through the winter at this point um no matter how how cold it gets yeah
0: and uh you yeah, know the relationship between wood and sun is a good one because it, it really is it like is solid like, sun where that came stacked. from stacked
1: i never know which sun i was talking about you know,
0: yeah um right i think i do know which sun you were talking about you were yeah exactly mm-hmm. that one mm-hmm. um but uh anyway you know you take your choice but Uh, But that one, yeah, it's stored up in the wood and um, so anyway, I'm just, I'm excited that uh, we appear. It's not a slam dunk, but it looks like we're going to survive the winter.
1: Nice. (laughs) Yeah. May the same be true for all of you who are listening and watching. Absolutely. To you and yours. All right. So we're going to, we're going to get into it uh, quickly today, but just a few reminders right off the top first. Um, We are not going to do a Q and A this week. Uh, and if you were looking for some dark horse content instead during that time, you could pick up our book, Hunter Gatherers: Guide to the 21st Century, or check out Natural Selections. This week I republished an essay that was originally published in a literary magazine uh, that's now defunct. Uh, the essay is called Memories of a Mugging, and it's an exploration of the sensory nature of memory, and told um, through a story that actually happened to me and three of my students on uh, my first study abroad trip in Ecuador, where we were mugged at knife point in Quito. Uh, and it's, uh, I'm, I'm very fond of this, this piece. Uh, and it got me thinking about a number of other, other things as thinking about uh, memory will do, and thinking about the science of memory also will do. Uh, okay, we are supported by you. We encourage you to join our Patreons, to uh, subscribe to the channels wherever you are watching, YouTube, Odyssey. Uh, If you are listening only and you're listening on Apple Podcasts or wherever, um, definitely subscribe and share and like. And a reminder that on our Patreons you get access to our Discord server, where there's a great community of people having conversations in all sorts of modalities. Uh, speaking of the senses, um, by text, by audio, by video, uh, and they don't—they uh, don't care what you look like or how old you are or where you come from uh, or what you think, so long as you're respectful and recognize the humanity of all of us. So, um, trying to make sense. Let's trying, say. trying to make sense, indeed. Uh, so uh and finally uh for top of the hour stuff we have sponsors we are very grateful to our sponsors we start uh start these podcasts every week with three ads and then we don't do any more throughout the episode so without further ado here we go our first sponsor this week is vivo barefoot they make shoes made for feet everyone should try these shoes most shoes are made for someone's idea of what feet should be vivos however are made by people who actually know feet and that sounds obvious, that we all know? feet? No, most of, most of us don't, it turns out, and including many shoemakers who are thinking about what they want a person's foot in a shoe to look like, as opposed to what a foot actually is and what it needs to do in order to, for a person wearing these shoes to remain healthy.
0: Those people who do it badly are, are shoe mockers. They're making a mockery of shoes is what I think is going on. Huh. All right, I've thrown a monkey wrench into the works.
1: Well, it seems to me that Schumacher is either the German or the Yiddish pronunciation of, I think... It's, Schumacher, it's, it's, it must be. It, it must be, right? Must In be. which case, mocker. I'm not i'm not sure this totally works because mocker is maker in at least some related language
0: well i think it does work as but long as can't I... be the
1: word for shoe in german or so i don't even know i right. don't even know what that means.
0: i i apologize to our uh, our native german speakers but otherwise i think it stands
1: and not the yiddish speakers
0: there aren't that many yiddish speakers and you don't
1: apologize to them anyway
0: <laughs> i do but i think it's more or less academic
1: happy about everyone <laughs> <laughs> Um, A word is spreading about these shoes, and we've talked about this before, but I was approached by a stranger this last week uh, who recognized the shoes I was wearing and asked if they are as good as she had heard. I was, of course, wearing the vivos that I wear most times that I'm out, and yes, they are. They are indeed as good as she had heard, and as... Good as we are telling you they are right now. This is, again, Vivo Barefoots. We love these shoes. They're beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on is amazing. They cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They're fantastic. Our feet are the products of millions of years of evolution.
0: Not just So are our ears. Their feet also.
1: Yes. Your feet, your ears, our ears, our feet. But we're only talking about feet at the moment.
0: And ears, apparently.
1: No. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run bare. So if you want to talk about ears, you can go read my memories of a mug and peace and senses and all this. Yeah. Um, our ears are the product of, yes, millions of years of evolution as well. And in, uh, I'm not going to go there. Okay. Modern shoes, they're overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health crisis. People move less than they might in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. I, You know, so this is not a standard ad read, but as long as we're talking about ears. <laughs> right. Um... So one of the um, diagnostic characteristics of mammals, so-called synapomorphy, is having these three middle ear bones which have moved, have migrated from being gill arches in early vertebrates. Um, And we don't have gill arches anymore, as many of you will have noticed. Uh, And some of the the posterior gill arches have moved, some of the skeletal elements of them have moved and become our middle ear bones and have allowed us as mammals um, to hear uh, really well. And I, it, it raises the question for me of what has happened with the uh, um, tarsals and metatarsals in the feet. There's, a, you know, there's less, there's going to be less modification at one level uh, because there's no sort of, you know, gill arches to be transformed and to move up into the skull and such, or into the upper part of the skull. But, um, but obviously like a horse's hoof, with, a, you know, the, the reduction of digits and such, uh, and the movement of us from being quadrupedal to bipedal is going to have transformed our feet bones a fair bit, and thus there may well be, like there are um, other downstream negative health consequences of being bipedal and then sitting down a lot, um, that there are likely going to be a lot, of, um, a lot of foot concerns as well that are specifically addressed by these shoes.
0: Yeah, there's a huge amount of stuff going on in hands and feet, uh, which I learned a great deal about when you and I became interested in the hobbits of Flores Island. There's some very interesting distinctions in the hands of humans and human ancestors from uh, our pre-human ape ancestors yeah anyway it's probably not the place for that <laughs> but anyway it's, it is a fascinating question yeah, yeah. because the hand really isn't what you think it is nor is the foot right all of those yeah. little bones are not incidentally separate they are totally. functionally separate
1: totally okay let me just um if, if anyone thought like wait what did he say that's homo florasiensis uh, from Flores island in eastern in the indonesian archipelago in eastern indonesia
0: Which is a great story that we should get back to at some point.
1: We should. Yeah, probably not today. We're not even halfway through the first ad. (laughs) Okay. Um, Modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health crisis. People move less than they might in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. It's not an excuse, though. Just get better shoes, try Vivos. Enter Vivo Barefoot. Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. The number of people wearing Vivo Barefoots is growing. Once people start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to stop. Certainly been the case for all of us in our family. Vivo Barefoot has a great range of footwear for kids and adults and for every activity from hiking to training and everyday wear. They're a certified B Corp that is pioneering regenerative business principles and their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural and recycled materials with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild in it. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive offer of 15% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash darkhorse for your 15% off offer.
0: You know what I appreciate my Vivos most? No. When I have to put on regular shoes. I realize that they are closer to ski boots than they should be.
1: Oh, the other shoes. Yes, Yes. the other shoes. The other shoes are closer to ski boots than they should be. And Vivos... um, are not
0: they're not you no. definitely feel uh on the other hand
1: feet. you don't want to ski them
0: i have not tried that yeah okay even just attaching the
1: only negative thing it. i can really come up with yeah, yeah. No. don't don't try to ski in them no. okay our second sponsor this week is moink that's moo plus oink moink m-o-i-n-k moink is working hard both to help save the family farm and to get its customers access to the highest quality meat on earth lamb chicken salmon and more For instance, fully 97% of the chickens served in the U.S. are dipped in chlorine, but the chicken you get from Moink is grown on family farms and is never and will never be dipped in chlorine. Founded by an eighth-generation farmer, Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon directly to your door. This meat is fantastic. Moik farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moik meat tastes like it should, which is to say delicious. Not only that, it's good for you like it should be, which is to say uh, the animals um, that uh, the Moik products are made from eat while they're alive what they're supposed to be eating. Um, So they continue to be healthy for us to eat, unlike much farm-raised meat.
0: And no doubt a lot happier because of it true they are not suffering illnesses from eating the wrong stuff
1: right exactly moink gives you total control over the quality and source of your food you choose the meat delivered in every box from ribeyes to chicken breasts pork chops to salmon fillets it's all fantastic and you can cancel anytime we love everything about moink the fact that the mat the mat no it's not mat the meat it's meat it's grass-fed and finished on small farms the lovely publications that come along with it and of course the meat itself pork beef lamb chickens it's all completely delicious Consider treating yourself or someone else to some truly fabulous meat. It's grown humanely and with care, and it's fantastic for you, and you'll never want to go back. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted. I agree. It's amazing. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash darkhorse right now, and listeners of this show will receive free filet mignon for a year. That's one of the best filet mignons you'll ever taste. That's one year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. That's M-O-I-N-K box.com slash darkhorse. That's moinkbox.com slash darkhorse.
0: So can you pronounce moink properly for the uh... No, you can though. I can. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mmm. Nice. There it is. All right. Yeah our final sponsor and it's not
1: that I'm shy I actually can't make that oink sound it, you yeah. have
0: to practice I, I feel like I'm going to
1: inhale you. my brain into my um, takes, my nose into my brain it
0: takes work it actually yeah. took me years to get to being able to do the lamb vocalization I that one was the toughest for me but you've got to yeah, practice the animal
1: she, little ba- baby baby sheep or were you doing a full
0: no I guess it's full-grown sheep yeah yeah, yeah okay um, but okay. regardless yeah. or as they say in Boston regardless. <laughs> Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. Our here we are. final sponsor. as yes. No surprise to you. This week is Mindbloom. Mindbloom is the leader in at-home ketamine therapy, offering a combination of scientifically robust medicine and clinically guided support for people looking to improve their mental health and well-being. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health issues, they probably loom large in your life. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, but you know that you are or your loved one needs something that will help achieve a real and lasting breakthrough maybe it's time for you to check out guided ketamine therapy program from Mindbloom Mindbloom could be your next and most successful chapter in mental health and well-being Mindbloom consists of uh connects patients to licensed psychiatric clinicians to help them achieve better outcomes with lower cost greater convenience and an artfully crafted experience To begin, take Mindbloom's online assessment and schedule a video consult with a licensed clinician to determine if Mindbloom is right for you. If approved, you'll discuss your health history and goals for mental health treatment with your clinician to tailor your Mindbloom regimen. Mindbloom will send you a kit in the mail complete with medicine, treatment materials, and tips for getting the most out of your experience. After only four sessions, 89% of Mindbloom clients reported improvements in their symptoms for depression and anxiety. Reports uh, one client on their site, quote, I thought I was broken. Now in the light, mm, now the light inside me is growing stronger every day. Let mind bloom guide you uh, to a better chapter of mental health and well-being. Right now, mind bloom is offering our listeners $100 off your first six-session program when you sign up at mindbloom.com slash darkhorse and use the promo code darkhorse at checkout. Go to mindbloom.com slash darkhorse, promo code darkhorse for $100 off your first six session program today. That's M-I-N-D-B-L-O-O-M dot com slash darkhorse and use the promo code darkhorse.
1: All right. That's our ads for the week. Um, We've got a lot to talk about, uh, but I wanted to start with a couple of, of lighter things before we delve into some of the... The muck. The muck. Yeah. First, I have a correction, and it's not exactly a correction, um, except it's a. I, I made. I, I mentioned Forrest Gump last week, mm-hmm. and I said I hadn't seen the movie. Uh, I think we were what we were talking about was um, we were talking about whether or not there were any roles out there, um, acting roles that were really ungendered, where it did, it wouldn't really matter whether or not you were male or female. And I said, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Maybe Forrest Gump. Well. I just apparently so wrong yep. and um and this prompted some discussion online about whether or not it is in fact one of the greatest movies ever or some people are like it's totally overrated and either way i think we clearly need to see it um but it it reminded it reminded me of why one should not say it. i mean at least i was careful and i said i haven't seen it but maybe this but it's just Really, really, ridiculously wrong to imagine that that was a, a character that was ungendered. Um, but then, in the sort of in the wake of that conversation, uh, a friend of ours pointed out uh, that uh, there is a production of Samuel Beckett's *Waiting for Godot* uh, that is being that has been canceled because Beckett. Um, so this is you know classic, awesome, awesome frickin' play um, from sort of. Uh, theater of the absurd uh genre and uh and beckett who is now dead uh required that the characters basically just two characters there are a couple other really bit players but it's uh it's uh, vladimir and astrakhan i want to say yeah um oh, and pozo um that they be male and i don't know when i first heard i was like oh, i guess maybe um uh but whatever it was Beckett was the playwright and he said it has to be male and uh, he's gone now and I think it's his son who uh, oversees his estate and there was some... Um some play being done, some production of Godot being done, in which many of the people behind the scenes, many of the people who were not on the stage were actually female, and there was no injunction against that, Um, but they were abiding by uh, Beckett's rules that uh, the actors, uh, the characters are male, and they actually be played by male actors, and it was shut down uh, because this is somehow non-equitable. None. None equitable. Not fair. Not not okay. Because we we need to be present in everything, no matter what. And you know, there's a, we're not. This is not the story that we want to spend a lot of time talking about today. But my God, people, like seriously, not everyone gets to show up in every place at every moment. The idea that women need to be allowed. To be playing characters that were written as male characters in a play in which the playwright said, these are actually male characters and they need to be played by male characters, um, is a little bit like, and I will probably take some shit for this, but a little bit like men who are dressed up as women claiming that they need to be allowed into women's music festivals or women's domestic crisis centers or women's sports, right? Like, nope, actually there's rules. And sometimes the rules aren't what you like, and um you're gonna have to deal with that. I mean it, it invalidates the
0: entire purpose of the exercise, right? It makes
1: which this the the, the the playwright or the or the or the the uh
0: desire to impose rules on any given play that require openness to people of configurations, you know. There are no children in the play, right? (laughs) No one in a wheelchair in the play. Right. This is, A, it's the perfect example of sophistry. Yes. Right, because the whole point of the play is to actually say something, or in Beckett's case, in a strange way, not to say something, but... um, To explore
1: explore the nature of waiting and infinity and expectation and hope and humanity and, you all right. of these things. It's not a job. It's simultaneously program. a tiny play in terms of like what happens yeah. and the scope of space that is traveled and enormous. It's like it's infinite in its implications. And sorry, I interrupt you, but I, th- I feel like I, I haven't gone back and reread it, but you know, I, this is what i I love this play. You know, I have it. You know, right. I actually have two copies of it. I found it also in another um, anthology of plays on our shelf here. Um, it feels to me like it's explicitly... A non sexual play, right? And so I think that, you know, it's not mine to say, but I think that Godot would work if it were all female. Well, but I, and you know, okay, yes, and you know, there's homosexual attraction, I don't care, right? Like, I think given that most of the world is heterosexual, and given that once you have mixed sex groups interacting in a very sparse, place you raise this question of like oh well what did that mean what, what was that about was that was that interest what like what is going on there and so this like st- saying like no you know what it's all male and i think you could equally well say no it's all female except i didn't write the play so i don't get to say that but i think that this would work equally well as it just like you know what it's just going to be all one thing so that we don't raise the question so that issue is not central to the play yes
0: but so first off i think it is perfectly within bounds for beckett to say this should be staged as males only totally i think it is perfectly valid for somebody who wishes to stage the play to say i know what the playwright's wishes were but uh it's not his to say i'm going to stage
1: it female or i'm going to stage it mixed sex i wouldn't I apparently the estate doesn't let that happen apparently it's still somehow i don't know the rules so right? there are legal yeah, there are yeah,
0: legal bits yeah. but at the moment that this becomes public domain because it's existed too long I, yeah. I, I would not fault anybody for violating the playwright's wishes but i do think it ought to be you ought to do that consciously you ought to say yeah. here's why right here's here's why i'm doing that
1: and the show notes should say you know if, if you have flaunted yep. those things totally. uh, legally then you need then you should acknowledge that but that's
0: all in the yeah. um in the the scope I will point out, there is one section of the play that I recall that would have to be refigured for female characters. Okay. If I am remembering correctly, I hope I have this correct, but yeah, I probably haven't read it since high school, but um, there's a point at which the futility of Waiting for Godot causes the characters to toy with the idea of suicide by hanging and one of the arguments in favor is that it will give them erections if i remember correctly i think
1: that does happen am
0: i wrong no. i i,
1: I, think I, I also did there. not go back um but uh
0: i think yeah, it's in there and
1: i'm not going to be able to find it quickly and you know
0: look to... i'm i'm uh, totally open as we i think talked about last week to refiguring of things like plays where you know romeo and juliet is radically refigured in west side story for example yeah and so I'm up for a radical refiguring of this, and it would be interesting to have females have that discussion and then realize that, in fact, that was not an argument in favor because, of course, it wouldn't work. Uh, right? You could do that. So anyway, it's all it's all right. available for the refiguring, but nonetheless, the idea that the play is invalid because it is inherently about males is preposterous. Some things are.
1: Totally preposterous. Yep. Okay, so there's that, and there's one other thing I wanted to... Uh, talk about before, um, uh, before we get into the main, main meat here, um, which I said last week that we would talk about dogs a little bit, and we never got to dogs. And this was prompted by, you know, not last week, but two weeks ago now. I was in Portland for a few days and hanging out in coffee shops and watching people and, um, and also walking, walking around various neighborhoods, watching people. And I had the thought as I did Multiple times when we lived in Portland, Uh, and you know, less so now that we're on an island without as many, without as much commerce, without as many opportunity to sort of run into, into people and to do people watching without it being really obvious that you're being watched. Um, I had the thought, dogs may be the ones to save us. Dogs may save the world in so far as they break down the borders between people and it's easier if both strangers to one another have dogs because the dogs don't care and uh you know increasingly uh there are people who are like oh no no don't you know well my dog doesn't get along with it and like okay well you know I, I wish you had taught your dog to be a dog then and like I, I know that some dogs really can't can't do this thing with other dogs but that's not very dogish of them uh but in general dogs are curious about other dogs dogs are also curious about other people but People tend to be interested in dogs, and dogs are definitely interested in dogs. And whereas people, uh, especially in cities, are quite happy to walk by each other and either pretend the other person doesn't exist or um, often just sort of stare at them or you know, make a scowl or something, you know, how dare you smile at me. Uh, once the dog has, uh, once they've gone up to each other and investigate each other, either nose to nose or nose to butt, or you know, all the various configurations by which dogs greet each other, um, the people, especially if the dogs are leashed and are therefore sort of pulled into closer, um, closer proximity have a much harder time being grim with one another. They just have a much, much more difficult time. And this does, this is true regardless of, you know, whether or not you're one of those rare people who actually doesn't like dogs. Um, and I'm not saying like, oh, cat people, like I sort of think of myself as a cat person more than a dog person, but come on dogs, right? like it's, it's dogs it's like
0: the one thing we can all agree on. Yeah. can't uh, something with you.
1: We've got as you you've pointed out uh what something like and you know there's a there's a lot of different ways in and there's some competing uh hypotheses out there yet but something like well many tens of thousands of years of coevolution with dogs. And uh really what that means is that we have coevolved with them. They have you know we oh yeah we domesticated dogs. Dogs are you know our longest uh, domesticate, yeah, but you know we have co-evolved with dogs, and uh, they are showing us, they are reminding us if we let them, as we watch the ways that dogs interact with each other on the street and with 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 the owners, uh, how to be our best selves. And if we can if we can listen to them and watch them and interact a little bit more like they do, we might find our way out a little bit more quickly.
0: Yeah, dogs, I I love this point of yours, and I, I quite agree with it. I've seen the online version of this where people put aside their differences uh, to remark on Yeah. very often dogs and their interesting behavior. I, I do think it's interesting, uh, you know, we all know examples of dogs, you know, who picked up their owners racism or whatever yeah right right but that used to happen much more I believe because I think racism went out of fashion and you know it's back hopefully Mm. the dogs will not pick it up this time but um but there is something dogs are something like three times as long under our our uh under our mutualism as our next closest domesticate, mm-hmm. because their domestication had nothing to do with farming, whereas right. everything else is post-farming. Yeah.
1: Dogs are older in the human lineage than rice.
0: <laughs> by far, right. yeah, by far. Yeah, oh, About um,
1: three times, as you say.
0: But the there is something, you know no owner controls what their dog thinks of some other dog. Dogs have their own thoughts. So, so there is this way in which you are yes. dragged into an interaction in which the nature of the human beings and even the other dog is, you know, that is beyond yours to say anything about. And, um, you know, I, I love the idea that dogs might remind us of our more ancient selves, remind us of, uh, how, how much is at stake and how lucky we are to even be here. You know, what mm-hmm. did the last 30,000 years look like? that we should arrive at this moment where we do have uh, enough control over the natural world that we can, you know, dedicate ourselves to abstractions and the creation of art and beauty and all of these things, because more or less we have the basics taken care of and why we would toy with wrecking that, right? Why we wouldn't be obsessed with preserving what we've accomplished so that we can actually move forward rather than have it all detonate out from under us. um, You know, a dog is a pretty good reminder of that if you if you tune into it correctly
1: yeah very much so okay um, did you want to start
0: actually could we finish there i'm, I'm happy either way but uh, do you want me to start there
1: i had thought so but um you want to start by talking about this then sure okay uh, so the New York Times, you remember the New York Times?
0: <laughs> I recall them yes.
1: Yeah. We, we, do you know that we still subscribe to the New York Times? I, I know uh, this, this is a thorn in your side and you know we don't we, we can no longer get um, uh, paper delivery here on the island. so um, it, by the
0: time it gets here, it's so soggy <laughs> you just can't.
1: but we're still we're, I'm so foolish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, no I, I I try to read widely and um we had been subscribers to the new york times since we were in college and uh and we are still um back when we were in college i don't remember ever being mentioned in the new york times do you remember being mentioned in the new york times i don't
0: think i don't think it happened yeah
1: yeah well um that changed
0: yes yeah
1: okay so you can show my screen here zach uh we're gonna go back and forth a few times here this week uh sorry this is from february 9th so what is that two days ago steve bannon's podcast is top misinformation spreader study says a large podcast study found that mr bannon's war room had more falsehoods and unsubstantiated claims than other political talk shows and they've got an uh an unattractive picture of steve bannon because of course they do because of, of of course that's what they do here um So, uh, here, maybe give me my screen back here so I can, uh, so I can talk a little bit about this. Uh, actually, what we'll do here, the, uh, yeah, you can show my screen briefly again. This is, again, from the same New York Times article. Steve Bannon's War Room podcast topped the Brookings Institution's list of political talk shows airing false, misleading, and unsubstantiated claims. They've got, um, they looked at a lot of a Lot of podcasts, and the top 10 sources of misinformation were um, War Room, The Charlie Kirk Show, The Rush Lumbaugh Show, The Michael Savage Show, and Brett Weinstein Dark Horse Podcast.
0: My god,
1: remarkable!
0: Yeah, that is Rem- remarkable.
1: Remarkable. Okay, so, um, what the actual fuck? I mean, really, that's like that's a that's about where where I land, but um. This is based on a uh, report from the Brookings Institute, OK? And I you know, did not show my screen yet, Zachary. Uh, I lost the section that I was at. Unfortunately, um, Brookings, which is a, a, a think tank, uh, did this research on podcasts and their content and they call this research audible reckoning how top political podcasters spread unsubstantiated and false claims and they say for instance uh that go go on
0: so So, let me just say when i first encountered this. A friend alerted me to the fact that um, that we had been mentioned in the Times uh, in this regard. And I was unaware of it, and I went looking, and, oh, it's the Brookings Institution has done a study. And my immediate reaction was, well, I know where the bodies are buried, hmm. because in order to make such an assessment, you would need a method. And no method is actually conceivable here. There's no method you could justify Because what they're claiming to assess is the veracity of claims made, but what they are going to be talking about are claims in which what is true is in contention.
1: Well, and this, so this is exactly what I was just trying to find, which uh, I had set up, but it disappeared on me. But you can now show, Zachary, Um, this is, you know, cataloging unsubstantiated and false claims. How'd they do it? What was their method? Reading from the Brookings Institution Research. In addition to systematically limiting the podcast series examined in this analysis, it was also important to restrict the number of unsubstantiated and false claims searched for across podcast episode transcripts. Because, you know, there's just so many. To do this, the research relied on claims compiled in two different ways. The first was the text of claims or statements fact-checked as false by either PolitiFact or Snopes, two independent fact-checking organizations whose fact-checks are widely relied upon by the public and members of the media and academia as credible and well-substantiated. Are they? Now, my very first natural selections piece, which I called Fact Checkers Aren't Scientists, went through, at that point, that was in um, July of 2021, went through a number of things that Plitifact had claimed were not just wrong, but egregious. They their, their rating system goes from like totally true to literally they call it liar, liar, pants on fire. They called a couple of the things that you had claimed or Dr. Malone had claimed in the podcast that you did with Dr. Malone and Steve Kirsch as liar, liar, pants on fire level wrong, which then months later, at the point that someone had decided to actually reconcile the facts with the facts, went oops, not only not wrong or egregious, but actually right, they just quietly, silently switched it and didn't say anything. No public reckoning, no nothing, nothing, right? So PolitiFact is, Brookings says, widely relied upon by the public and members of the media and academia as credible and well-substantiated. Yeah, as is the CDC, As is the FDA, as is the WHO, like, as are all of these institutions, which time and time and time again during the pandemic have, by us and some other people, been effectively checked. Using what? Using the tools of science. And, um, my God. Uh, So let's just show a couple more things here. This is figure 12 from the Brookings Report. Unsubstantiated or false claims about alternative treatments and prevention were more common than all other categories combined. Oop, there we go. Uh, So uh, they found uh, that, you know, even conspiracies, I don't even know what that is, right? Like conspiracies, Showed up almost, uh, you know, a quarter, a quarter of the time as discussion of alternative treatments of prevention, or you know, vaccine efficacy and side effects, disease severity, government policy response, testing. Now it was alternative treatments and prevention that was the biggest source of misinformation, apparently, during the COVID for during the COVID during During the COVID. COVID. Yeah, let's do that during the COVID um, by podcasters who are, you know, waving around their credentials, like us. And which ones are those again? Now, you talked about some of this last week, and we talked about this a lot over the last several years, but uh, things like, oh, yes, the Voldemort of alternative treatments, ivermectin, which does work and is safe. And still, I'm finding pieces in The New York Times claiming um, that it's not only not effective, but not safe. This is a drug that's been on the list, the WHO's list of essential medicines, for a long time. If it weren't safe, it wouldn't be there. It is safe. It has been demonstrated over and over and over again to be effective. The first moment that we started talking about it, we already knew it was safe. Is it effective? Seemed probably so. Maybe unsure. The evidence has just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. And this discussion right now is going to increase our ranking. a future piece of research by the Brookings Institution in terms of the amount of misinformation that we are engaging in.
0: So let us agree that the structure here is for, let's work backwards. You've got a news report Mm -hmm. saying, okay, we've got a misinformation problem. That Mm -hmm. news report is based on research. Okay, research. The research was done by the Brookings Institution. Oh, the research mm-hmm. had a method. The method involved looking shit up on Snopes and PolitiFact, nakedly political, right? Yep. Snopes may not have been at the beginning, but now nakedly political. Mm-hmm. And so the point is, at, you're reading the New York Times and you're seeing that in fact, there's a misinformation problem. And if you chase it all the way back to how you would know, there's no there there. Now, I do remember, and I stared at it for a goodly long time, because I, of course, when I looked at it, I'm like, look, they've just described that they've done research for which no conceivable method could exist. So I'm going to go look at the method. And my prediction is there won't be one that is in any remote way valid, because there can't be, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, PolitiFact and Snopes, let's call me Right. There was no method. <laughs> yes. And then they invoke some mysterious dictionary that has terminology that would tell you. They might
1: as well invoke a crystal ball. Right. This is just simply, or, you know, really, they're the ones claiming the mantle of science. A text that no one is allowed to see it, is the arbiter of truth. Right. And so the point is, look, you can even do science on what they're doing.
0: Right. Oh, here's a claim. I bet it's garbage. Prediction there won't be a method. Let's go look at the method because they claim there is one. No. Oh, it's looking stuff up on Politifact and Snopes and some dictionary they don't share. Ah, no method as predicted, right? Science even works on this stuff, right? Yeah. It's
1: mm-hmm. not so, that, not that they would know.
0: Not that they well, they don't care. The I also is, think
1: they don't know. I think I think that's I think that's part of what's going on. I think that's part of why, you know, part of what we did in the classroom for 15 years and part of what we've been doing in the podcast is saying, you know what? you can science this stuff. You can apply scientific thinking, scientific rigor, scientific logic, the scientific method uh, to any claim. And you may not have the tools with which to assess the claim, but you can figure out what you would need to know in order to assess it, and you can figure out what can't possibly be true, and you can figure out what the assumptions are of the people making the claim, et cetera, et cetera. And that is what we are doing, and we are sharing it with other people so that you all can begin to employ the same kinds of tools and assess things for yourselves. And what the mainstream media, what the think tanks and the mainstream media who are trying their hardest to maintain the status quo, are doing is saying do look at that that's this is, this is dangerous over there those those people who are talking mm, it's is bad it's well, it's it's bad stuff what they're doing
0: it's the exact flaw is pseudo-quantification right what they want to do is claim that they made a ranking a numerical ranking Right. So what they've done is they have created the impression that there is something to be counted. And what they did is simply count it. And here's the structure. It's as objective as can be. I mean, look, we've got a bar graph. Right, we didn't. And we, it's not like we took and markers. Those are digits
1: on it. Yeah, There's we asked. Numbers. We
0: asked a spreadsheet to make a bar graph, and it just simply took the number in the cell and translated it into a distance on the screen. Right, and the point is, yes, but you you got it from Snopes. <laughs> it's fucking Snopes, right? So oh my god, and and worse, worse. You know, I kept digging in this thing, and it's not like I read it to end. But hold on, the other thing I noticed, right? It didn't take long to run across the fact that this is somehow. Borrowing from data and society. You remember data and society? Mm -hmm, Here's mm -hmm. my recollection of data and society. Back in the early days of the so-called IDW, data and society reported that the IDW was, was far right their term. Now, the funny thing was that a lot of us looked at this and said, wait a second. Of the named people in the IDW, more than half are left wing. What that means is that this report—
1: Well, and somewhere in here, and I'm not finding it at the moment, they rank a bunch of podcasts in terms of their uh, political leanings, and um, they have us as conservative.
0: They have us as—well, but that's just the point. So the report itself is guilty of egregious misinformation. It is guilty of partnering— with people who have a history of spreading misinformation about us. None of this is apparently of a concern though yeah. to the Brookings Institution, because their real purpose is a bar graph that makes it look as if something countable makes us uh, unreliable, which mm-hmm. is of course not true, right? This is really a question of keeping people um, inside of a mental prison. Yes. The point is, what they don't want is for you to start listening to voices who have been correct about things. And the reason that you're not going to listen to them is because as you are told that actually this person got this right, you will read, oh no, they get things wrong all the time. It must be a rare case of them being right. It's utter nonsense, right? It's the same attack as uh, calling us gurus,
1: Mm, right? The idea
0: is, oh, if you listen to them, you're a sucker, Right. Oh, if you listen to the Dark Horse podcast, uh, you are absorbing misinformation. And if you don't know that, that's because you haven't done the hard work of uh, going to Snopes or whatever, right? I mean, it couldn't be more muppety. This is, this is, this is childish, right? If a college student came up with a method this bad, you would sit them down and you would gently say, "I understand what you're trying to do. Here's why that doesn't work," right?
1: So he, uh, yes, and uh, at risk of getting into like the weeds, that was evergreen. Uh, we gave students took full time programs, sixteen credit programs, and uh, you gave the narrative evaluations, and you you could, and sometimes in order to apply to grad school and such, um, there was a method by which you could turn those narrative evaluations into grades, so that they could calculate a GPA. Um, but there weren't grades, um, but what that meant was that if a student did some did fail to do any work at all or the work was so absurdly missing anything of value uh what you did what i did was uh you know with with compassion with full respect for the human on the other side of the interaction would say I'm not writing you a narrative evaluation for this part of the program. You just don't get any credit at all. This disappears from your record and that's a gift. You should go back to zero and start over because this thing isn't any good. It's terrible.
0: It's terrible. And so the point is in college, you might write a report purpose of the report you write in college is not to make it into the world and inform people about things. It's to train you to write a report that actually has some content in Mm -hmm. it. Here's a bunch of people who should have failed at the college level and either gone back and learned how to do this properly, or they shouldn't be doing it at all in public because they don't understand how to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, the real question is, Is there actually an intent inside the Brookings Institution or Data and Society or the New York Times to actually report things that are real? And are they fucking it up this badly? Or is that not the point? Is the point pure politics? Is the point to keep people subscribed to the same bad uh, compromised channels of information because the idea is to feed them bad information in the future? And you can't do that if they have an alternative. Mm
1: -hmm. Here's an extended quote. From the Brookings Institute Research. Mm-hmm. Yet apart from these conspiracy theories, unsubstantiated or false claims shared at this time were far more nuanced and primarily involved, wait for it, misunderstandings of science. Yeah.
0: It's quite a claim.
1: Several prominent podcasters carved out positions of authority during this period of high uncertainty. For example, Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein that's us, relied on their backgrounds in evolutionary biology to amass a wide audience for their unconventional coronavirus advice. The pair repeated unproven claims about the prophylactic use of various treatments, including ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, and cast doubt on vaccine safety. Throughout their episodes, Hyang and Weinstein tried to bolster perceptions of their credentials by using technical terms. Hmm. In one episode, Weinstein offered a little brain teaser, saying that, quote, correlation is in fact evidence of causation if there was a causal hypothesis pre-existing the observation of the correlation, end quote. I can't even read this next part with a straight face. While it's unclear exactly what he is referencing... (laughs) Perhaps the most basic tenet of statistics emphasizes that correlation does not equal causation and is indeed susceptible to confounders. Although researchers can control for potential known confounders, there may be infinitely more unknown confounding variables driving any observed relationship. Rather than protecting researchers against confounding, a preexisting hypothesis may instead make them more prone to confirmation bias. <laughs> Weinstein, however, may have deployed this language to appear to burnish the scientific bona fides of the hosts for a non-technical audience you know who's trying to burnish your scientific bona fides for the benefit of a non-technical audience that's you brookings institute and the new york times and all the rest of you you clearly have no idea what you're doing you don't understand what a hypothesis is and that prediction changes the baseline oh my god this is so bad okay. i'm well, sorry like they, let me they just have... finish read like this is so bad. Okay, go on. They have,
0: in, this is so bad. they have invalidated most of science in their claim because what they've done is ruled out the possibility that you could test an idea by making a prediction and then seeing whether the correlation exists.
1: If this is true, you can't know anything ever. There is no knowledge. What's There's more, no basis to know
0: anything. What's more... What is the, the very a... things that they are claiming that we the
1: most basic tentative statistics. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. But the, with, so this is a classic this is a oh classic um, midwit idiocy. Yeah, right? Because the point is yeah. um, you come to a level of understanding, which is correlation does not imply causation, which is shorthand for correlation alone does not imply causation. Right. Our brain teaser, was yes, it does imply causation when you hypothesize that there would be a correlation. The evidence is all the stronger if it is an unexpected correlation predicted only by that hypothesis, and then lo and behold, you find it. And so the point is these people are non-scientists misunderstanding what actual science is and deploying this syllogism without an understanding of what it even
1: means. And if, I mean, I guess you, I, I will finish the rest of this in a minute, Zach, you can take this off the this, this screen for the moment. Um, if, if the author of this report is willing to say, I don't even know what this means, but we all know, don't we, the correlation doesn't imply causation. Why is it that we are supposed to take anything that this person says or that the people who rely on this kind of analysis with any kind of seriousness? Like, th- this is a demonstration of a failure to understand basic scientific logic.
0: Right. The, so basic. The most fundamental The most logic, fundamental. Which is that we, we, you know, your observation of a pattern is not a scientific conclusion. You have to get to a hypothesis about what might cause the pattern, then you have to test that with a prediction, right? That's how you discover this. And so even their own report should collapse under this because the whole idea that anybody knows what's true about COVID and therefore that we can say that those other things must be false, that comes from work in which people have deployed a hypothesis and then looked for a correlation.
1: To be fair to these people, which I think we're being very, very fair, but um, they're not alone. I remember back when we were professors and I would get asked to peer review papers for journals, uh, because this is an expectation. This is part of the unpaid work of being a professor is that you get asked to peer review papers for various journals. And the, the most frequent reason that I gave to reject a paper, was there's no hypothesis. If the authors want to reframe this as we collected a bunch of information and from that made an observation, and now we have a hypothesis, but it's not been tested, then they could rework what they've submitted. But in general, scientific journals don't like to publish things that don't claim to have results. If you didn't have predictive hypothesis in the first place, then what you've collected aren't data. They're not a test of anything. And the fact that many people who are purportedly doing science don't understand the distinction uh, means that some person at the Brookings Institute with a PhD in something political doesn't understand it um, maybe isn't that surprising, but it's going to destroy the planet. Like, you know, this, this level of the combination of like deviousness and ignorance is devastating to discourse and to our sense making. Like we, we cannot hope to make our way through a landscape of lots of different kinds of information coming at us if we can't put a couple of simple things in order and say, I made an observation. What are all the possible reasons that that thing could be true? Okay, I've got three possibilities. If possibility A, let's call it a hypothesis, were true, what else would necessarily be true? That's prediction that follows from hypothesis A. Same for prediction that follows from hypothesis B and C. Okay, are these mutually exclusive? super easy and wonderful if they are. If they're not, well, the predictions from A and B aren't mutually exclusive. Um, But if C is, if the prediction from C is true, then we've definitely excluded those two. And if one of these is true, we're still stuck with these two. And on and on and on it goes, right? It's not that hard. School kills this in us. And apparently higher ed and the credentials that most of these people are walking around with completely obliterates the ability to think through basic logic. You have something to
0: yeah, say. Yeah, I've got a couple of things. Yeah. One, one of the things that we have done from the beginning on Dark Horse is build up people's scientific toolkit with principles that we rely on. I don't claim that they're necessarily finished, but there are a couple of principles principles that, yeah. that belong here. One principle is every scientific paper could describe its relationship to a hypothesis. And the relationship really comes down to one of two things. Either it's an observation which leads to a hypothesis, which then needs a test, or it is a test of a hypothesis that exists. Now, part of the problem that we've talked about is that this is all on the honor system. And one of the ways for people who are pursuing a credential or grant money to cheat is to pretend that some observation they've made was actually a test of a hypothesis that they only came up with after.
1: Oh, look what my data showed. Oh, I totally thought that all along. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. This was a test of that thing that it's now shown to be true. Uh-huh. Yep. So
0: the honor system is a problem here. Yep. But yep. when done properly, you're doing one of... There's nothing wrong with not having a pre existing hypothesis. But the point is that says you're on step one. You're on the observation phase. That's right. right? If you have observed... And then you want to go run a test. You need a hypothesis, and you need to have that. Uh, you cannot test it uh, with the observations you've already made. You could go back to a data set and you could look for some other pattern that you've now predicted will exist there. But you have to actually run a new test. Otherwise, it's scientifically invalid, mm-hmm. right? So, anyway, that's the process that I you don't think. You can't go back to
1: your own data set. Like, you, you can look at other people's data um, and say, you, could, you know. you it, could. It
0: query your data set for something else. You can't query it for the observation that set the process in motion. You could look for something else that you didn't know was there or not there. You could look for some other correlation. But the clearly, these people do not understand the basics of how science works. And it's not, you know, Children do scientific thinking without having to be trained. They don't do it perfectly. They don't do it in a Popperian way. They're Mm -hmm. not falsificationists. But the point is, scientific thinking is natural. And as you say, it's drummed out of us by bad education. But these people clearly either don't know or don't care or both, right? The second piece of uh, the toolkit I want to point out, um, somewhere in what you read, Mm -hmm. they do what Scott Adams calls mind reading, where they say that the reason that we have used technical terms, which they don't understand...
1: Weinstein, however, may have deployed this language to appear to burnish the scientific bona fides of the host for a non-technical audience. Is that the sentence you are after?
0: Yeah, yeah. First of all, for a bunch of humanities morons, that's not even good English, right?
1: <laughs> Read it again. <laughs> Weinstein, however, may have deployed this language to appear to burnish the scientific bona fides of the hosts for a non-technical audience.
0: Appear to burnish. What they mean is burnish. Mm-hmm. Appear to burnish is the revelation <laughs> that the and trick we're is we're going to copy it full. at you, too. Right. So you're not even doing <laughs> humanities well, and it's, you know, that's a pretty low bar. But yeah. um, okay. here's the point. What are the chances that that accusation would land on a podcast that has the following thing as a piece of toolkit, which we have deployed and tried to teach our audience repeatedly?
1: What's that going to
0: be? The distinction between jargon Mm. and terms of art. Yeah, yeah. Now, what we say Mm -hmm. is that terms of art are a necessary evil. If you're working on something technical, you will probably need some terms that are not straightforward. This should be minimized. You want as few of those things as possible. You want them as straightforward as possible. But if you're working on technical material, it's probably not going to be zero. You're going to have to make some terms that are technical that need to be described explicitly. Jargon is the abuse of the fact that you might need technical terms to do technical work, to keep people out, to keep them from knowing what you're talking about. It is the use of unnecessarily complex language in order to limit the discussion to only insiders, right? That is not a necessary evil. That's just simply an evil. So the idea that they're going to accuse us of using language
1: like correlation and causation.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hypothesis. Yeah, that's definitely us using jargon there. All right. So I,
1: I, I do have to confess that as you were talking, I thought I did just use the word synapomorphy during an ad read for shoes, but I did define the term.
0: Yes, yes. you did define. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, synapomorphy is one of those things. It's, it's a necessary evil. It's not a, it's not an immediately intuitive term. Since
1: we're no longer in the ad read and I've just used it again. A synapomorphy is a shared derived characteristic for a particular clade. So hair or fur is a synapomorphy for mammals. And that doesn't mean that we all have them because you can lose them, but it's diagnostic for the group.
0: It means that it accompanies the evolution of the group and it didn't exist uh, in the group from which the group de- descended, it doesn't uh, uh, exist in pre-mammal
1: ancestors. Yeah. Four-chambered heart, also a synapomorphy of mammals. Anyway, the wow. diaphragm.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, I-, I think first of all, um, let's just be honest. Uh, if the question was, we have been, it, of course. Yeah.
1: No, but I'm just saying, like, be honest. let's, let's, can we? Hold that thought. I would like to take this opportunity to invite the staff at the Brookings Institute and the New York Times and all the rest of you guys to be honest. Let's be honest. Start now.
0: Yeah, start. It would be good. Yeah, I, I would be, I would be less resentful of our New York Times subscription if you started being honest. Now, <laughs> yeah. but, um, let us be honest about the score here.
1: Okay? Mm.
0: At a logical level, this is As stupid as a report could be, it is an exercise in pseudo quantification. It is hilarious that when you get to the methods, you find Snopes, PolitiFact, and some (laughs) dictionary that they don't share, right? That is not a method. That's garbage. Okay. They still win. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yep. most people will be scared away mm-hmm. from podcasts like this one mm-hmm. by the implication that somebody has done a scientific study and de- decided that we are saying untrue things. So, this is absolutely cheating. What they're doing is oh, yeah. instead of pointing to a thing, you know, uh, the spike protein made by the uh, the vaccines is cytotoxic, right? That is a factual claim that I made mm-hmm. or Robert Malone made. I can't remember which one of us made in it on that, in that, that episode, podcast. Yeah. We were fact-checked, I think, by PolitiFact, who said, that's false, and then it turned out to be true, of course, because logically speaking, it makes sense that because the spike protein of the coronavirus is cytotoxic, and the spike protein made by the vaccines is much more like that spike protein than it is different, and there's no reason to think its differences render it non-toxic, right? It was a logical thing to say, but the point is, they don't want to have that discussion because they will lose right? Where we have gotten stuff wrong, we have corrected it. It's not Mm -hmm. a win for them. There's no accusation to be leveled. What they want to do instead is pretend that actually there is a volume of information that they have gone through it and they have discovered a pattern of being factually incorrect without having... so
1: hard. Right.
0: Now, the funny thing is that we actually had, you at one point on our podcast uh, said that we needed better skeptics, Hmm folks decided to take up that challenge, and they actually went through transcripts of our podcasts. They solicited from our critics Mm -hmm. indicators of where in those transcripts we had said something that was incorrect, and then they went and evaluated those claims, and they did not find this pattern. They found a few very minor places, Mm -hmm. but in general, they found that all the things that people were saying were false were not, in fact, false. So if done... Uh, By some reasonable method, it comes out entirely differently. But the real point is the bar graph, the imprimatur on the New York Times, the imprimatur on the Brookings Institution. All of those things are designed um, to scare people away from things that they have no mechanism for directly challenging.
1: Yep. A couple more things from this. Um, Just... The same section that I was just reading from in the Brookings Institute thing. You don't need to show my screen here, Zach. Some podcasters also cited non-peer-reviewed preprints and data, which often contained faulty statistical analysis or poor research designs, to bolster their prior beliefs on the efficacy of ivermectin, for instance, while summarily dismissing similar non-peer-reviewed studies whose conclusions ran contrary to their preferences. Uh, I read that, and then by chance, um, because uh, I get nature and science into my inbox whenever they put out a new issue, uh, I, I saw this, which you can show. screen now this from nature this week this is nature news so you know nature is one of the two uh, most prominent science journals in the world and they also have a basically a news section so it's you know it's a great source for uh science news covid drug drives viral mutations and now some want want to halt its use analysis reveals the signature of the antiviral drug molnupiravir in sars-cov-2 sequences riddled with mutations so There's a lot to talk about there, and I don't know that we're going to talk about most of it right now, but I just want to point out that Nature, um, which is not a right-wing political podcast riddled with misinformation, is that what we are? Nature's not, I think we can all agree. Um, This is, um, this study was posted, what? This study was posted on the MedRXIV preprint server in January. It has not yet been peer-reviewed, but why is Nature talking about it then? Oh my goodness. There's probably statistical errors in there that the peers would certainly have discovered because the peers definitely know the difference between uh, causation and correlation. Which, of course, um,
0: pretends that the effect of peer review is to vastly increase the quality of what is published, and that is actually a testable hypothesis. I'm trying to remember. Somebody wrote a very good, I believe it was a Substack, evaluating peer reviews effectiveness at this very thing. I read it a couple weeks ago. I will attempt to dig it up and assuming I can find it, we will put it in the, in the notes of this podcast. But the point is peer review is actually a failure in this regard. And we acknowledged at the point that we talked about many things on the preprint servers, that that does increase the amount of noise. However, what it means is that you don't have all of the skullduggery that takes place in the so-called peer review process interfering with your ability to know what's going on. You basically have uh, a raw scientific discussion and you have to sort wheat from chaff, which is what we do. And that's yeah. part of what we did from the beginning.
1: Now, we've talked about peer review many, many times on this podcast, including very early on in our discussion of COVID back in like March or April of 2020. Uh you know, it. the idea sounds brilliant. It's not inherent to the scientific process at all. Um, what is, is uh, opening up your ideas to be challenged by friend and foe alike. That, that is um, an important part of the scientific process, but peer review is not. Peer review is basically a modern invention to deal with the fact that we, you know, there's a lot of people trying to do science now and trying to get the attention of, you know, even larger number of people. Um, but uh, peer review itself it actually acts more like a gated community now than like an actual ability to, to sort wheat from chaff. You know, I mentioned earlier that I used to do peer review uh, and uh, very often when I would say, You know, sort of the the things that you can recommend are like this is awesome, no change is necessary. Uh, This is really good, but there's a couple things, you know, I'd like to know more about what this analysis was. You know, they need to look into the literature over here, this, that, and the other um you know or recommend to uh to reject those are you know usually more categories than that but those are sort of the three categories that as a peer reviewer you're you're offered uh to recommend for a paper and uh very rarely when i said recommend to reject on account of there's no hypothesis but they're pretending there was uh was the paper actually rejected Mm -hmm. Uh, because you know peer review is often done as sort of like a majority vote it's like okay the editor is going to send this out to three possible peer reviewers and they're going to come back and if i'm the only one Gives a damn about they're not being a hypothesis, uh, then the paper's not going to be rejected and it's going to you know go into the literature.
0: Yeah, it's so, a very it's a very arbitrary filter. Yeah, uh, that often introduces errors. It sends authors back to do things that are unnecessary.
1: It fails- <laughs> and you know and the 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 differences between the pure... The peer reviewers, is, uh, it's, it's funny, like this, it's yeah. its, own, it's, it's, severe, its own literature. It's right? a really broken process <laughs> yes. that has
0: really no purpose, right? It's yep. really a holdover from a time in which there was a limit to the amount of stuff that you could publish because ink and paper were expensive, and so that space had a value. Yep. Um, and the fact is, this stuff is now electronically published why should anyone be in a position to stop you from publishing a piece of work because it's bad? If it's bad, it doesn't stand up. But if it's great and somebody said it was bad because they were your competitor and they didn't want it to see the light of day, why should that have any weight at all? You...
1: Well, so, you know, if I'm, if I'm in a steel man, you know, why journals, why editors, right? There's too much information uh, and we all have to, we all have to figure out some ways to funnel our attention to you know, to exclude some of the things that want our attention so that we can focus on this. And I've told this story before too, but you know we, we are generalists. We have done very, you know very focused, highly specialized work in a number of domains. Um, but we are more or less generalists, as in general is uh, the approach to understanding life that is evolutionary biology. But I remember the you know, two-day interview that I had when I was uh, applying for the job at Evergreen. Uh, I had an hour free between all the different interviews and such, and I went to the library. And the library was pretty bad. It's, it was very bad. Uh, it was a little, you know, a podunk library without very many journals at all. And this would have been in 2002, I guess. Uh, and so there wasn't as much available online. And I went to, uh, one of the faculty on the committee that was deciding whether or not to hire me and said, how do you, how do you do your work here? I don't like, I don't, I don't see how you can do your work when this is the library you have access to. And this person who I respect greatly said, oh, I subscribe to the three journals I need and that's it. That's all I need. I thought, well, but I don't just. I don't even know which three journals I would choose. I mean, I you know, I could probably named three. If you really told me you can only look at three scientific journals ever for the rest of your life, I'd pick three. But they certainly wouldn't be like, you know, in this particular little field. It that doesn't I'd let
0: you do to, generalist work.
1: It doesn't let you do generalist work. And, you know, especially given that Nature and Science, like all the journals are now so much crappier than they used to be and not honoring, you know, good science at all. Uh, You know, the idea that, oh, I just I look at the thing that I need to look at that I'm interested in now, like, even if that is good for you now, because the particular research program you're doing now for the next six months or a year really does take you into that space. How about letting your mind expand and go into an adjacent space and an adjacent space and over here and over here and over here? And, you know, that is one of the things that the Internet has allowed, that you don't need access to the Library of Alexandria or whatever its modern uh, counterpoint is. You can say, oh, oh, okay. And, And this, you know, this is actually some of the work that I did for Bob Trivers back when I was his research assistant as an undergrad before, you know, the early 90s. You know, he'd be he'd read a paper and be like, "Oh, wow! What? Oh, I want to see these references. Go get them." And Bob, you know,
0: who was a generalist.
1: Bob, who's a generalist, still is, right? Um, and he'd say, "You know, this is this is my job for him." Like, I would run back and forth between his office and the library and get the references and photocopy them and bring them back. And he'd quickly say, i like, oh, this reference," and go back. And now you can do that without having to hire a research assistant, right? So, uh, and it was amazing, and if you really are only saying, oh, I'm only interested in these little things here, well, you're not going to be able to see the bigger picture, and therefore you are inherently going to be missing at least some of what is true and maybe all of it.
0: A couple points. One, the reason, though there has been a, a dramatic narrowing of focus. Graduate school narrows you to focus on a question so small that you can't get scooped because you're the only expert or there's one or two others and you know what they're working on, right? Yeah. And it's a terrible process from the point of view of getting the most bang for the buck out of science. You want people as generalists. A, they make much better teachers, right? If you wanna teach the next generation how to think and what's true, you don't want somebody who trained very narrowly. You want somebody who trained broadly but B, the innovations of a generalist are likely to be much more consequential, right? Yeah. The point is they're not some narrowly focused thing, which, yes, maybe you know, there's some cure for cancer lurking in your narrow little uh, realm, but probably not, right? If yeah. you're going to find some general principle that is actually going to level up a bunch of different disciplines, it's going to be a generalist who finds it. The second thing is... Um, you you bristled a little bit at my claim that who's why should peers be able to stop you from publishing your thing just because they say it's bad the fact is maybe
1: i just said i I can defend why editors and journals exist
0: oh I'm not arguing that editors and journals shouldn't exist. Maybe they should. I think by and large, they're terrible. they're not the only
1: thing that should exist. But the
0: point is, that should be no bar to your putting your work somewhere where it can be of value. If it takes 500 years for your work to turn out to have been prescient, right? The fact that people were wrong for 499 years after you did it is not an argument against people reading it. That's In fact, they should be able to go back and find out, you know, this person was dismissed at the time. Turns out they were right. And Mm so... The, the whole idea that we are being taken to task for reading the unpeer-reviewed literature as if peer review was any good at all which it isn't mm-hmm. right it's a it's a it's a um it's a negative influence for many many reasons yep. but the idea that we are being taken to task nature is not being taken to task because it obviously uses the uh unpeer-reviewed literature and the whole point here is to put a shackle on our ankles not to actually apply some standard generally mm-hmm. but um but the fact is look that literature is what it is and yes you need to realize that nobody has vetted it for you but the vetting doesn't work so okay there's a lot of there's a lot of chaff in order to get to the wheat you got to be better at it but that is the point and who's going to be good at it generalists
1: that's right um uh, okay one more thing about brookings yeah before we before we leave this uh, someone pointed out to me online uh, that uh, Brookings has been a, uh, a somewhat bot entity for a while now. So they pointed to this article. You can show this, Zachary. Um, this was in Washington Post in 2014. So this is a you know nine-year-old article on um, basically the influence uh, that is being bought at at Brookings, and just a couple of of things here. Lobbyists say they warn clients not to expect that they can dictate research results from an elite think tank, such as Brookings, but note that they gain a chance to make their case directly to researchers, stay in touch as papers are written, and suggest participants in public forums. Whoa. By enlisting Brookings and other top-tier think tanks, quote, you can amplify or raise an issue, said Ed Cutler, a senior partner at Mercury, a public affairs and lobbying firm that has developed expertise in think tanks. Quote, you can buy attention, but not a point of view or an outcome. So... We've talked about the nature of attention before. You can take my screen down now, Zach. Uh, And I could, you really, really what I want to say is just read this entire book. This is The World Beyond Your Head by the awesome Matthew Crawford on Becoming an Individual in an Age of Distraction. So this is the book that followed his, um, his amazing, also amazing book, Shopcraft is Soulcraft. Uh, this, this book explores the nature of attention, the attention economy, uh, the fact that while we no longer are uh, eagerly putting up with having um, polluted air, polluted water, uh, a lot of us still put up with toxins in our food and our medicine, but increasingly people are, are thinking carefully about what is it that we have changed in our environment that is actually bad for us and, 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 um, and making us crazy frankly, he he focuses on attention in this book. So just a quick um, excerpt um, from this book. You can see, if you can see on the edge there, you probably can't see all the book darts. Uh, this, This book is well worth book darting, and again, I highly recommend it. When we go through airport security, the public authority makes a claim on our attention for the common good. This moment is emblematic of the purpose for which political authority in a liberal regime is originally instituted, public safety, and rightly has a certain gravity to it. But in the last few years, I have found I have to be careful at the far end of the process because the bottoms of the grey trays that you place your items in for x-ray screenings are now papered with advertisements, and their visual clutter makes it very easy to miss a pinky-sized flash memory stick against a picture of fanned out L'Oreal, L'Oreal lipstick colors. I was already in a state of low-level panic about departure times, possible gate changes, and any number of other contingencies that have to be actively monitored while traveling to say nothing of the fact that my memory is tapped out with detailed concerns about the talk I'm going to have to give in front of strangers in a few hours. This fresh demand for vigilance, lest I lose my PowerPoint slideshow, feels like a straightforward conflict between me and L'Oreal. Somehow L'Oreal has the Transportation Security Administration on its side. Who made the decision to pimp out the security trays with these advertisements? The answer, of course, is that nobody decided on behalf of the public. Nobody with a capital N. Someone made a suggestion and nobody responded in the only way that seemed reasonable. Here is an inefficient use of space that could instead be used to inform the public of opportunities. Justifications of this flavor are so much a part of the taken-for-granted field of public discourse that they may override our immediate experience and render it unintelligible to us. Our annoyance dissipates into vague impotence because we have no public language in which to articulate it, and we search instead for a diagnosis of ourselves. Why am I so angry?
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, So I want to go one step farther before we leave this topic.
1: I want to talk about it.
0: Attention is one question here. That, what you read from 2009, wasn't it? 14. 14. 14.
1: the, the, the 2014 Washington Post piece on Brookings um, basically selling influence yeah. or, or having access to influence. And then the Matthew Crawford book is 2015, just the next year, actually.
0: So, A, there's a claim in there, right? Oh, well, you can buy attention, but you can't buy influence, right? The point is, if, if it were—this is the process of capture taking place. Yes. If the Brookings Institution was independent— then it could check the uh, quality of work done by others. That's a hazard. If the work done by others, if, you know, Pfizer has purchased bad work to advance dangerous products, and it has caused the New York Times to be blind to the obvious indications that there is a problem inside of the uh, connection between pharma and science, right, then the Brookings Institution could spot it. Well Pharma can't very well tolerate that's so what's going to have to capture Brookings. So I don't know the I don't know whether the connection here is Pharma, but the basic point is look. You are watching a process unfold in which something that could credibly tell us that the system has been compromised must itself be compromised so that it will not tell us that, mm-hmm. right? Of course you can buy influence, right? Once one of these entities that has uh, a financial interest gets its way into these organizations, then the point is well you know, how smart do you have to be to realize that your grant is going to get funded if it leads in a direction that is pleasing to the funders, rather than is not going to get funded if it displeases them? It's not a hard thing for people to recognize. And so, of course, all of these things, you know, can you, can you buy influence over a senator? That would be illegal, right? Okay, but are there a thousand ways? You know, what can you wink at a senator such that they know that they're going to get a certain job in the private sector that isn't going to require a lot from them and is going to spit a lot of money in their direction after they leave uh, public service? You know, it's sure hard to prosecute. Mm -hmm. Is it? You know, what did that wink mean? Oh, I just had something in my eye. Oh, I guess you're innocent.
1: Right. Right. And again, this list from the Washington Post piece from 2014 on um, clients accessing research being done at, for instance, Brookings includes making a case directly to researchers, staying in touch as papers are written and suggesting participants in public forums. Right.
0: Right. And actually, this goes back to your uh, however many months ago you're talking about Ms. Magazine abandoning. Uh, advertisements, because although in theory, the advertiser should have no influence on the content, those who work in these spaces know that that can't be true.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a whole other story. Specifically, you know, back in the early nineties, uh, advertisers felt, you know, back Advertisers felt that it was not just acceptable, um, but they got to demand that they could skew editorial content, specifically in publications that were deemed women's publications, uh, such that uh, you didn't feel a little icky or challenged or uh, or empowered, really, um, by reading an article that might be next to an advertisement for, say, L'Oreal, right? Just to you know pick on <laughs> the people that Matthew Crawford already picked on. Um, But it's the same for any of these products, right? Like The idea that if you want to have, if if, if you want to help this publication survive, well, you get to change what the publication is and not have the readers end up empowered or educated uh, or upset or angry, well, then uh, the publication is no longer what it was. So basically, you're buying an audience... That in by in in setting the terms for what your what your fees are going to buy, you are guaranteeing that the audience will disappear, right? The 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 audience that was there for challenge, for you know for education will not continue to stay for you know cute stories about what lipstick to buy, or maybe they will, wow. in which case your population becomes dumber and dimmer and duller and less able to tell the difference between correlation and causation, even when it's spelled out very clearly. And those people sometimes get to write up reports for the Brookings Institute, which then get empowered by the New York Times. And then, you know, attention that could be coming to, hey, we'd like to help you become better able to make sense of your world. That attention has been scooted that way. Because we are apparently dangerous zealots.
0: Well, um, in some ways, I think the overarching uh, conclusion here is that they are making our point. Because our point from the beginning has been that the capture of the system by perverse incentives is making the information unreliable and putting you in danger as you try to follow it towards a reasonable course of action. Mm -hmm. And the point is, what are the chances that some report is going to come out and say, don't listen to those people, they are spreading misinformation and then you scratch the surface and you get a bullshit method and pseudo quantification. The point is, oh, of course, because they've been captured. How could they not have been captured and why? Can you guarantee that something like that will be captured? Because zero is a special number, right? If there were think tanks that were large and had this grand and premature that were actually free to do their job, we'd live in a different world because they would be commenting on all of the corruption. They would be calling it out. They would be, And we would all subscribe to the publications that look to those think tanks to point the direction because those things would be more reliable and we'd be safer and better informed. And who doesn't want that? And so the point is, this is the immune system of... <laughs> This is the immune system of the corrupt uh, institution killing apparatus, fighting Mm -hmm. those who frankly have to be outside of an institution even to do the work, right? That's the thing. We're out here uh, defenseless because it's the only place the work can be done because otherwise somebody says, uh, Dr. Haring, I would like you to sit down with our funder so that they can, uh, you know, point your attention to some issues with the research that you're doing, right? And the point is, well, where does that not happen? Well, it doesn't happen here,
1: right? It doesn't happen here. And even the places that it doesn't happen in institutions, it could suddenly start to happen. It didn't happen at Evergreen, right? right. Like it, was, it, it was why the place was so magical, in part because of the remarkable unprecedented, otherwise unknown level of autonomy that the faculty had to ask the questions they wanted to ask, to teach the way they wanted to teach, and to engage with ideas and curriculum in ways that may not have been orthodox, may not have been seen before, may not have been standard, and as long as you had respect and honor and everyone ended up okay in the end, like, good, challenge, uh, make people feel uncomfortable for sure. You know, and you know, because we were doing field biology, like we're going to take risks of all the sorts and we're going to be careful. And we're going to make sure that we plan a lot of things in advance by making sure that you have on board, all of the tools that you need to make decisions in tough situations. But ultimately this is about you and the universe and being honest about what you're seeing and what you're doing. And that's what we continue to do now after, you know, after the school went insane, and now after, you know, the government and all the three-layer agencies have gone insane, and we were commenting on those things, you know, to classes of 25 and 50 students for, you know, a long time before we were ever doing that to an audience here that was larger than that of people we don't know. But, you know, the the lessons are the same. This is not, you know, the, the idea that uh, you, you the institutions are captured and they are often doing exactly the opposite of what they're claiming to do is not news to us. Like we've, we were saying those things to our students for a very long time. And it was OK to say that at a school where uh, we weren't relying on, for instance, funds from the NSF and NIH in order to pay our salaries.
0: So in some sense, you've got um, a pattern. We can uh, observe what is taking place here and we can describe the pattern and then it makes a prediction about next time, right? Yes. If you are calling out the capture of institutions, if that, if that institutional capture has covered everything, right, then you will be attacked by institutional stuff. Yeah. It will attempt to portray you as objectively off base. And when you scratch the surface, you will find bullshit in the methods. That's the prediction every time
1: snopes Split effect <laughs> an examples. unnamed snopes. dictionary yeah all right uh there's a lot of other things we could go to here but uh maybe we should uh you, you had something something big and you said you wanted to finish there but this will take a while and why don't, we, why don't we save the rest of what we might have done for next week all and... right
0: so i i do want to warn people there is a way in which this could be us lost in back and forth with online discussions which don't matter it's not that. I want to talk a little bit about an interaction that I've been having with Scott Adams. Many people in the replies to this interaction have alleged that Scott is acting disingenuously, that he is not functioning in good faith. I don't know. I don't see that in what he's saying, but maybe it's true. It doesn't matter. What I want to do is recognize that his questions to me actually constitute a fantastic opportunity, whether they're genuine or not. And I sincerely hope that they are genuine. But whether they're genuine or not, they do lead us to exactly the right questions that we need to be asking. They speak, in a sense, for an audience that is skeptical of us, but might listen. All right. So, Zach, if you would put up the uh, thread that we have most recently been interacting in. All right. So here we have Scott Adams, so this is obviously continuing from a different thread, but he says, It's binary, Brett. Either you have a secret way of knowing the future of long COVID and also long-term vax injury, or you guessed about the risks, same as I did. He's responding, he's quote-tweeting me, saying, You are setting up the problem incorrectly, Scott Adams, um, putting your future self and your followers at unnecessary risk by doing so. If you'd like to discuss it, I'm willing... Uh, assuming you'd rather know than not know that is okay my response to his uh claim that i am guessing i say as i said you are setting up the problem incorrectly it's not a guess it's priors weightings and evidence and then in parentheses hint evidence is not synonymous with quote data unquote it this can be explained well but that is a very small fraction of the skill as it is with archery, painting, and math. He responds, Does your process not depend on knowing the main risks? I respond to him, Not in the way you seem to imagine. I also don't depend on my knowledge of chemistry to keep me safe from poisons when I'm in a tropical forest. One could, of course, treat everything as poisonous, but that's not what a good naturalist does. You discover patterns and methods. He says, this is where the rubber meets the road. Science was invented, so you wouldn't do that.
1: I don't even know what that means. So you wouldn't...
0: I do. So, so that I wouldn't have to uh, come up with some... Discover patterns and methods? Well, that's just the thing. Interesting. You're confused in exactly the same way that I was. So I say to him, fascinating. It never occurred to me that you'd think I was describing an alternative to science. You have been misled, Scott. The Grant game has turned universities into a racket. Big science is done by people willing to attest that men can become pregnant. Actual science is an art. And then I want to finish on uh, my friend Creon Levitt, who responds, paraphrasing Galileo, quote, science is poetry written about nature in the language of mathematics. Mm. Then he quotes Feynman for a successful technology reality must take precedence over public relations for nature cannot be fooled. And then Mm -hmm. Creon says science is like an art, but unlike art, its supreme arbiter is nature. And I believe Creon has slightly misstepped here Mm -hmm. because I am saying that the practice of science is an art. I am not saying science is art.
1: Right.
0: Okay. So what I wanted to do was proceed from this a little bit. I think what is evident in Scott's complaint especially where he says science was invented so you wouldn't have to do that where i'm saying look i use something else to figure out where the toxins are in a tropical forest and he says science was invented so you wouldn't have to do this i
1: gotta say like that i did not i had not seen this but if we're reading correctly what he means there science was invented so you wouldn't have to do what you and i do when we're in tropical forests i'm now much more scared for humanity than I was. Like, I did not think, I did not think that we were there, that actually the outsourcing of all of the knowledge, including the stuff that actually people don't yet know, was just like, that's, that's a good, that that's like, oh, once, once we've got it boxed and it's been, you know, peer-reviewed uh, and agreed and like rubber stamped, well then, boom, that's, uh, you just look at the, you look at the litany, you look at the list. You don't use first principles. You don't lose logic. You don't keep your brain alive and be thinking about possibilities. You're like, no, that's a known thing. That's not, that's not ever what science is
0: supposed to be doing for us. Right. And so this, I thought, was a terrific opportunity because I don't think most people really understand what science is. You know, we could talk about the scientific method, but that's too narrow. That's not what science is at a meaningful level. Right. 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 So they don't really know what it is that we are claiming. And so they do make missteps like this. Mm. By the way, I forgot to mention Creon Levitt is a NASA scientist. So he is a professional. Oh. Um, but anyway, so I wanted to try a little thought exercise because I believe there's some things involved in what you are call, you and I are calling science that mm. are not narrowly in the scientific method, but are also not the trappings of science. They're what we actually deploy, right? Yeah. And I, th- I thought the following... Okay. Mm. Um, thought experiment would reveal it. So the idea, I've not talked to you about this before because I wanted it to be fresh. But the idea is, imagine for a second that you and I were traveling by plane over a tropical forest with which we had no prior experience, like Indonesia, for example. Mm. We've spent no time in Indonesia. And suppose the plane goes down, we survive, and nobody else does, okay? So we're now in an Indonesian forest. Okay. Um, we don't recognize anything from our direct experience.
1: Never know. been in any forest near there.
0: Right. Maybe right? there's the occasional plant that's so general that it has a relative there. But by and large, everything would be new to us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the question is, uh, well, I was thinking a little bit about the um, the movie The Martian where, uh, what's his name? Matt Damon. Matt Damon, at some point, at the point that he's facing that certain, one I have seen. certain death... Um, uh, says that he's going to he's gonna science the shit out of this planet, right? <laughs> Which is something, you know, every geek in the audience is like, yeah, science the shit out of that thing. Um, but anyway, the point is, look, you and I would immediately, without ever mentioning science, start employing the process writ large to the puzzle presented by, well, what the hell are you going to do now that you are in the situation? And I wanted to talk about what that is, because I think it brings in some of the elements that Scott is missing here. Mm. So, all right, you got it in your mind. We've landed uh, without, you know, with some random collection of artifacts that survived some plane crash. Nobody's coming to help us. What do you do? How do you engage the problem? Right? So, A, you'd want to think about what threatens you, right? And in what order of priority?
1: I'll I'll just be, before you start talking, I will say that the first, two thoughts that come to mind are do we have to engage the question of cannibalism here um not between us like the corpses (laughs) nope okay so we we don't have to talk about that you know we could but i don't say everyone else is okay so we don't have to go there um and then you know if it's indonesia then of course one of the things that comes to my mind is like are we on borneo or are we on one of the dinky little islands such that like actually we're going to be out of coast and thinking about uh you know setting up flares to get the, get the attention so of other the, people my intent
0: way. here is that we are lost let's say that you know you're stuck rescuers come you see the rescuers land uh and you're you know you're 10 kilometers out and you book it back as fast as you can. But by the time you get there, they're gone. So you can infer they have decided nobody survived this plane crash. They're not coming back. Mm-hmm. So you know you have to survive by your wits. Okay. In this habitat, you don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? So anyway, a certain number of things before you get to the sciency part are like, okay, what am I threatened by in this habitat? Mm-hmm. Right? What is the order of priority of the problems that I have to solve? What do I have at my disposal? Did anything survive? You know, right. um, so let's just take, for example.
1: Well, you've got, I mean, you, you think through the hostile forces, right? The, you know, the hostile forces of nature that, that threaten you. As a uh, surprisingly undefended human out in nature, yep. which which doesn't happen to most humans most of the time, but you know they're the abiotic ones, right? There's there's weather and climate. Now you're in the tropics, so you're unlikely to freeze to death, but um, you know there's there's water levels that change. Uh, there's tree falls that can happen. That's biotic, I suppose. And then over in biotic space, you've got, you know, people always are like, Oh, you know, what's the big thing that's going to come at you, right? Like what's, what's the dangerous snake or the big carnivore? Uh, and really those aren't, those aren't the things, right? So it's going to be, um, it's going to be parasites. Uh, it's, and it's going to be, um, chemical competition from plants. It's going to be like poisonous sp- spines and thorns and, Uh, and uh, and little things that could get you out of defense rather than things that are trying to make you their lunch,
0: right? So, a couple things one, you're not going to freeze to death, but it doesn't mean you're not going to die of exposure, yes, or short of dying of exposure, you could make problem number two, which is sustenance, vastly worse, in other words, to the extent that you are burning hard-won food in order to stay warm, yeah. the point is you're actually require you're, you're driving up your requirements um, for nutrients yeah. to the extent that you could have sheltered yourself and failed to, Yeah, right?
1: So assuming you have no ability to um, filter water. You, you know, you, you, your your water your water problem is going to be one uh, that shows up quickly, and uh, you you want to carefully, basically, titrate water intake uh, sufficiently that you can know relatively quickly is this source going to make me sick? Well, and, and if so, I need to find other source. I
0: would also say that there's some things you can do to reduce the likelihood that it's going to make you sick. I mean, yeah. a you don't want stagnant yeah, water you, you look
1: for the the clear like clarity of water is a good visual indicator and
0: flow and
1: flow movement and clarity are good you know it just has less particulate matter in it it probably has less stuff that you can't see in it as well
0: yep um you could also one of the things that i would think about doing since water is unlikely to be limiting but drinkable water might be mm-hmm. if you could either with something you salvage from the wreckage uh carry small amounts of water so that you could use uv light to purify them right a very shallow bit of water can be purified with uv light now mm-hmm. if you're on the forest floor it's not like there's no light but it's not intense right it's it, uh, i don't know the indonesian number when i was working in panama there were some uh, plant physiologists working on questions and you know, they did all kinds of interesting things like put fisheye lenses on the floor of uh, a tropical forest so they could actually monitor the amount of light over the course of a day. Because uh-huh. These light flecks sweep across the floor as the sun moves. Right. Anyway, something like 1% of the incident light, the light that hits the canopy makes it to the forest floor. It's a tiny fraction.
1: Right. Well, but so you find a light gap, so okay. you find a place for one of these, um, so we're in Indonesia. Uh, so we're like m- interestingly one of the ways it's going to be different from forest tropical forest we've been in is that most of the trees are from the same family. It's all it's mostly the same. Is it Dipterocarps, Yeah, yeah. Um, but still they're going to fall sometimes. So you find you find yourself a light gap and maybe you try to um, UV UV purify water by finding a shallow pan into which you can put um, or shallow fashioning pan. out something of some of the fuselage could, or something. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, and so then you're going to have to transport it, which is going to be a waste of time and energy. So you're going to try to get efficient about that. You're going to try to find a get light gap or create a light gap big enough to do the job. And anyway, so, okay, that's going to be one issue. Water, obviously for most of your needs, it doesn't need to be drinkable, but the drinkable stuff needs to be pure. You could use UV light. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Second thing, food, right? So... Seems to me that
1: well, and you did you you said something in that thread, right? Like I I maybe I inferred because I know you know I do and you do and you know we've been together, uh, occasionally tasting of neotropical forests, right?
0: Of neotropical
1: neotropical forests
0: tasting in neotropical forests.
1: I said tasting of tasting of neotropical forests. I
0: would rarely approach a forest and taste the whole thing, but you know.
1: The, tasting of, not tasting the whole thing. Tasting of. And, uh, you know, you do so with great care and parsimony and um, and a little bit and you wait and you wait and you wait and you see and a little bit more of anything. Now, you can't be as completely careful if you have nothing. If, you know, if 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 the when the plane went down, it took out all of, you know, if you really have no food at all, uh, you know, you have you have some time, but not a ton of time. Yeah. Uh, well, to, to figure out what all you can eat. And uh, it's, it's, tougher to, it's tougher to hunt than people who have never hunted without the tools that they are accustomed to hunting with know. Uh, but, you know, you, you learn that, but it's far easier to forage.
0: So th- this is one of the things I was
1: hoping would emerge here. Okay.
0: Part of what it is to science the shit out of a forest like this in order to survive is taking a model that is robust— figuring out which elements of it apply to your new situation Mm -hmm. and then applying it in a way that you can reverse course to the extent that you discover something about the model isn't right yeah so you and i have a method right the method involves the recognition that there are fruits in a forest especially a tropical forest those fruits are relatively easily recognized you can identify a fruit which does not mean you can eat it okay some fruits are edible Some fruits are not edible, not because they aren't fruits designed to be eaten, but because the plant in question has decided to exclude certain animals, which are not good dispersers, in favor of other animals, which are. This can be um, a trick, as it is with chili peppers, where Mm -hmm. chili peppers give you the impression that you are being damaged, like you're lacerating your mouth. But it's not true that yeah. is to, that is designed to drive away mammals and right. give birds this particular fruit but they're not actually poisoning you right but if you were to find a rando fruit in the indonesian forest that you and i knew nothing about right some little red berry hanging off of something yeah right one thing you could do is you could take it and you could touch it to your tongue
1: well but before before you do that you use your other senses right um so you use the color and say, okay, well, if it's green, actually, it's either not meant for me or it's not ripe yet, probably a no. Uh, if it's one of the colors that humans tend to like in fruits, okay, maybe. Although red fruits, especially little red berries, are more often bird fruits uh, because birds see birds see red particularly well, you know, even in the in the dark understory. If it has an aroma that smells well, fruity. If it smells pleasant to you as a human being, that plant is communicating to you even if it didn't know you were coming, it knew it, it was, it was communicating to a potential mammal disperser of, of its seeds. And it's giving you the gift of the fruit to entice you to disperse it. And if it smells like, you know, there are in, in the Indonesian forest, there are like these, um, corpse flowers, right. Um, that attract flies. I guess that's the pollination stage. I don't even know what the fruits of that plant look like, but I'll bet it's not about mammal dispersal. Yeah. I, I may be wrong, but like, you know, if, if the fruit smells like poop or a dying corpse, like, yeah, that's that plant is communicating something to you. And maybe the plant is trying to obscure that it's got a great value there and you should override your first reaction and go for it, um, but don't start there.
0: Yeah. For example, durian. Right. Durian famously has a nasty smell, um, but it's very good uh, mammal fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could also, you know, do something like uh, if you were to observe monkeys eating a fruit in a tree and very often there's fruit dropped at the bottom of the tree mm-hmm. it's almost certain that that fruit is going to be safe to eat mm-hmm. um if so you do run found...
1: the monkeys invite them to dinner.
0: <laughs> well you can follow the monkeys around a little bit yep. that would be pretty useful yep totally um your green fruit is a great uh test case because mm-hmm. one hypothesis is that that green fruit is not ripe and mm-hmm. if you touch it to your tongue you will get an astringent feel mm-hmm. or a very bitter taste and it will tend to be hard Right. So, t- so touch as well so gives you a sense. The, yeah. the, the, the key here is that the model is fruits you shouldn't eat give you a warning. They have an interest in you knowing very quickly that you shouldn't eat them because the whole reason that they're toxic uh, is to dissuade you.
1: And so, this and the the conversation about fruits is going to be different from, uh, say, you know, what, what else might you find that's not just a whole organism? Um, well, fungus. You know, a, f- a fungus, right? Uh no fungus has as a strategy to disseminate itself in the world being eaten by something, I think.
0: I think that there are some occasional things. Okay, so um, in
1: so broad, broadly rush, speaking, then. broad it's brush, you can get. assume that you run into a fungus, you might be able to eat it. There's a really good chance it'll kill you, a decent chance it'll get you high. Um, but there's almost no chance, if not no chance at all, that... Its strategy is to entice you to eat it so that it can it, you can help it with its propagation into the world. Whereas there are and we talk about this in Hunter Gatherers Guide to the Twenty First Century, there are very few things that we eat that are actually designed by the organisms to be eaten. And fruit is one. Fruit, milk, right. uh, And yeah, fruit, so, fruit, and milk.
0: Okay, so and two funny, things. Funny,
1: but not by us. By the baby beans but
0: if you can figure out how to extract it the fact that it i'm just
1: saying like honey honey is not designed to be eaten yeah. by a mammal uh but it is designed it as is food, food. Yeah. yeah
0: um okay so your green fruit hypothesis is and hypothesis doesn't mean i believe this to be true i mean this might be true and
1: so obvious it could be <laughs> but I know,
0: I know, but the point is one yeah. hypothesis is that that fruit is not ripe and that when it is ripe, it will be edible to me. But yes. it will be counterproductive if I eat it before it's ripe.
1: Now, did we have the foresight to crash uh, with flagging tape or not? Uh, I would really like to mark trees and be able to come back to them. Of course Well, yeah.
0: but we're going to okay. get good at that. Okay. <laughs> that's part of the answer, yeah. is that the test for the hypothesis that that is an unripe fruit that I can eat when it's ripe is to keep checking up on it, right? Um, the test for the hypothesis that that fungus is edible to me, mm. right, might involve... For me, I would say watching an animal that is similar to me physiologically sure. eat it, mm-hmm. um, and you know, in you know, this is a survival question. Feeding it to an animal, mm-hmm. right? right? Now the question is, how do you feed it to an animal in this forest? That might be a trick, but
1: yeah, that seems like a like that seems several stages of unlikely, but well,
0: but there are ways you could do it. You could pair it with something, right? Also, it is true that many things that are toxic can be detoxified with methods that you could innovate here. Mm-hmm. So for example, many of the things like a potato is not a good thing for you to eat, but a potato that has been boiled is a good thing for you to eat.
1: Unlikely to run into potatoes in the Indonesian forest. No, but,
0: but you may run into something that is potato-like, a storage organ, and the it's point taro
1: is- or manioc or is that- no, that's also New World. Anyway, there's 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 some un, there's some going to be some underground storage organ right. that the plant is storing energy for its own use, does not want someone else to come along and eat it, but um, may have put something in, which could be maybe it's... The proteins are toxic and they can be denatured by cooking them. You can
0: denature them by cooking them or you can dissolve them out with water. Those are the two mm-hmm. big or, mechanisms. Or
1: dissolve them out with water and acid. Or, right? right.
0: But um, also true that to the extent that there's some number of calories that you need, um, that number can be driven way down with a technology that you would want for this other purpose also, which is fire. So Mm. I would argue one of your top priorities, if you think you're long-term stuck in a situation like this, is how to make fire. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say that nothing from the plane gives us any leg up in that regard.
1: Well, and you also... You know, once, once we start talking about, you know, how, how are we also going to start getting meat, uh, which is going to bring in a lot more calories, you then get a lot more nutrition out of the meat um, once. once. Exactly. So the... No, you get more calories out of the meat once you've cooked it.
0: Yeah. You get yeah. more nutrients out of the meat, especially calories. I,
1: I'm not, I, I think the, the nutrient analysis may go the other way, um, but you get more calories. I
0: don't think so. But anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, but in any case, you need a source of fire okay you're in an indonesian a lowland indonesian forest okay Mm -hmm. one of the ways to make fire is out you can't use an ice lens to uh what an ice lens the way you would use a magnifying glass maybe something from the airplane uh would Ice. yep yeah, can be done.
1: Yes, I not was not in imagining that you could.
0: Yeah, well, okay. it's it's, it's one of the. I wasn't even
1: on my list of possibilities. Okay, so okay. that leaves,
0: from my perspective, that leaves assuming nothing from the plane uh, is capable. You know, there are no lighters or something like that. Yeah, you've got two options, and I think their priority reverses based on what you did recover from the plane.
1: Mm.
0: Okay, the two ways would be bow drill mm. and fire plow.
1: I don't know what a fire plow is
0: fire plow is basically a piece of wood that you rake across a surface that you have flattened and generate enough heat to create a spark that can light some of the fire starting material
1: you know i just saw a video just before we came on <laughs> why i was watching this video i'm not sure um this is in this is a, a an iron guy a, 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 an iron worker um so he's got hard metal surfaces um but uh the, the premise is, you know, how do you start a fire with nothing but mechanical force from a hammer? Now, mm-hmm. in this case, you got you got two pieces of metal. So, you know, you don't have that necessarily. I mean, you got the fuselage of the plane or no, I don't know what all you got. Be, uh, um, but, you know, he's got some anvil like thing. Sorry, I don't know the language here. And he's got a hammer and yep. he's got some sticks and some paper. And first, you know, he, he pounds the wood into lots of little pieces and puts it aside. Yep. And then he takes just a, like a poker and he just pounds the poker with the hammer against the other metal until the poker is hot enough that it can set the paper on fire, that that can set yeah. the kindling no, and that I, can set the-
0: I can totally see that. Yeah, if yeah. You using it, mechanical if you force
1: had... to start a fire.
0: Right, and mm-hmm. a fire plow basically allows you to do the, something like this with wood where you mm-hmm. generate enough friction. Now, of course, the whole yeah. thing is dependent on, I've now forgotten what the term is for the stuff that you accumulate that lights very easily. Because once you have a little bit of uh, forest fluff lit, then you can Jaff. light-
1: I don't know. Tinder? Don't know.
0: What? Tinder. Yeah, I guess Tinder is probably the, the right term. There may be another term in the case of, of, of bow drills and stuff. But anyway, um, one of the key things to do, one of the things that I would do first in this mm-hmm. scenario is find stuff that looks like it should be flammable and put it in a place that it will continue to get drier and drier and drier no matter what the weather does mm-hmm. right because that's going to be the hard part often you can find stuff that will burn but it's too wet in the state that you find it and so yeah um
1: well and that's you know one of the, one of the things one of the things that will be challenging in such a situation which won't be obvious to people who haven't spent a lot of time in lowland tropical rainforests which is say jungles is how wet everything is even even if it even if you're in a little mini drought and it hasn't actually rained for three weeks and there's no sign that it's going to rain again, it's still just wet. Everything is wet and it gets wetter. And so, you know, the things we haven't talked about, is like, how do you keep, how do you keep the fungus away? How do you keep the pathogens away? Like, how do you keep yourself, you know, free of the organisms that want to encroach on you um, that aren't the big charismatic things that want to, bite you and eat you for lunch. But, you know, it's it's the, oh, my foot's going to fall off because I had a tiny little wound and now something has gotten into there and, oh, gangrenous.
0: Yeah. Right. So it's not your first priority after the plane crashes, but it's very high on the list that yeah. you
1: figure out how to generate
0: fire. And the thing about generating fire is it's very, very difficult. However, it is much easier and I think would be one of the, you know, top three or four jobs in the whole how do we keep ourselves alive scenario is... Starting fire, very, very tough. However many hours it takes you, it's worth it. Once you've got the fire started, keeping it alive enough that you can constantly revive it is Mm -hmm. going to be the key to survival. What you don't want to have to do is restart it more times than you need to, right? You want to be able to revive it. And that means in this scenario, you're going to have to start banking dry fuel Mm -hmm. Um, so that you can keep something on it. And if you have to go out for three or four hours to go look for food, when you come back, there's enough of a a smoldering, which also means you need a place to burn it, that if it rains, it doesn't suddenly turn to mush. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, you would start looking for these things. Um, Your point about meat is a good one. One of the things, you know, part of the scientific model that you would bring to this forest, in which you knew none of the creatures, is the idea that meat is edible right mm-hmm. there are a couple of mammal species and at least one bird species that mm-hmm. have toxins mm-hmm. as far as i know the pitahui bird is toxic
1: and i think it's just the feathers isn't it
0: i'm not sure yeah um but you know if we crashed, we wouldn't ha- we're not going to crash for the library so you can't look it up um okay
1: okay we'll take pitahui off our list
0: ta- if yeah well if we can even recognize a pitahui but the point <laughs> is um you know, for the ratio of edible birds.
1: If I remember correctly, it's the same toxin in, I think it's just the feathers in Pitahui as is in the poison frogs that I studied. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's, this, it's these lipophilic alkaloids um, that you really don't want to ingest because uh, that's an unpleasant well, death.
0: Uh, it would. There are some creatures that are very um, distasteful. Mm -hmm. right herbivores we talked about this folivores often take in so many toxins that their meat is disgusting yeah um but probably edible probably okay yeah um but you probably want to switch to something else as quickly as possible because the cost of detoxifying what you would take. i mean that's one of the things this is really what this discussion is about Mm -hmm. do you need to reduce your level of toxins that you take in to zero no your your liver and your kidneys and other aspects of your physiology can deal with low levels of toxin. What you don't want to do is take in a lot of any particular toxin. Mm-hmm. Um, and certain toxins are quite bad even in tiny amounts.
1: Which is why if you re- if you don't know your fungus and most people have just don't know anything close. Like you, that's that that comes last on your list of dietary preferences because well, the toxins that can that are in so many of the ones that you that you shouldn't be eating are, you know, are enough to hurt you at a very low dose.
0: Yeah, very low dose. You no. can take out your liver and there's no coming back from that in a scenario like this. Yeah. And, it, you know, frankly, even the hallucinogens are bad for you in this scenario. Yeah. Um, Because you, you can't afford the confusion. Um, But that said, if, you know, if you watched a mammal consume a significant Mm. amount of a mushroom, you could experiment with a tiny amount of it and Mm -hmm. see whether it made you sick. Is that sure not to kill you? I wouldn't say so. But the point is, uh, A, maybe you just discover, you know, if it's a fungus and it's consumed by mammals and you try a little bit and it doesn't make you sick, hey, you may have just increased the number of things Mm -hmm. in that forest you can eat to something that replenishes, that you can readily recognize.
1: Yeah, doesn't run away.
0: Not very fast at any rate. (laughs) Um, so did you have something else you wanted to add there? So anyway, my point here is science, observe, Mm -hmm. hypothesize, predict test Mm -hmm. is a smaller piece of a larger picture. Repeat, 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 repeat. Mm -hmm. But the point is the whole point of that exercise is not the production of so-called data, right? The the Mm -hmm. point of the exercise is the production of models. I don't mean computer models. You and I are both very skeptical of computer models because it's very easy to fool yourself or others by adding in enough parameters that the model uh, spits out plausible sounding answers for no good reason.
1: Well, and you, you you add assumptions in the same way you add data and generally you're generating neither the assumptions nor the data. And so you've just like, it's not it's not your own work in the same way, kind like, okay, I have my biases. And I'm, you know, walking around with some assumptions, some of which um, aren't yet explicit. But as, you know, as my hit rate goes down i have to go back and try to figure out which of my which what assumptions i don't even know exist i'm working from and get rid of them one by one and i mean it's like it's it's the science version of an elimination diet mm-hmm. right um, and, and and you know figure out what you need to do to get what your experience to a greater and greater match for reality
0: so you do this process it generates models those models are not an exact mirror of reality. And in fact, in the scenario mm-hmm. that I picked for us here, it'd be very different if we crashed in a neotropical forest. Even a neotropical forest that we didn't know has congeners of many of the creatures that we do know. Yeah. And we know something about their behavior, you know, if they're animals, which might allow us to search for them mm-hmm. more narrowly. And, um, you, know, you know, you and I would know that a capybara is good eating, right? Mm-hmm. That's something you would know. As for, you know, a sun bear... A, how dangerous is it? And B, how good is it to eat? That's a tougher one, right? It's not its not a familiar creature to me other than just to know that it exists. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah, they like avocados. No. Oh, no, you're talking about spectacle bears. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were still in the neotropical forest.
0: You're talking about spectacle bears in the neotropical um, forest. I was talking about the I was the thinking Indian. you could
1: follow spectacle bears to the avocados. You could
0: follow those. Well, and that's the thing is if, if we were in a neotropical forest, yeah. you know, uh, I would know how to find figs, probably, yeah. whether you could access them, be dependent on who's feeding on them because they're too high. Yeah. Uh, Spondius, you know, there are all kinds of things sure. that I would go looking for quickly. Yeah, yeah. But in a forest I really didn't know, you could use, the point is, hey, how good is my model? Well, mm-hmm. if I crashed in Brazil, it's better. Yeah. If I crash in, you know, remote yeah. parts of Sumatra, it's worse. Mm-hmm. But it's not nothing it's certainly good enough to begin to set out a plan for how to allocate my time and my effort and what risks to take in order to solve the problems that accompany survival, which would be don't die of exposure. Mm -hmm. Don't spend more energy on staying warm than you need to. Don't squander the resources that are in an animal that you have, uh, killed by failing to cook it properly. Don't risk taking on the parasites by not cooking it. You know, some mm-hmm. things that you can't Another eat. Another reason to cook, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things that you can't eat could be rendered edible if they can be boiled. Some things that you can't eat can be rendered edible if you can cook them. The point is that general model, mm-hmm. most of those parameters are not things that we discovered on our own in a survival scenario. They are things that we have come about through studying scientifically Mm -hmm. through coming to understand what the underlying mechanisms is the idea that a plant might want you not to eat its storage organ and it might fill it with toxins but if those toxins are water soluble that you have a way of extracting them and leaving the nutrients Mm -hmm. right this is the scientific model that you would crash in the forest with
1: and in this case uh, trusting what your senses are telling you with regard to aversions and disgust and preferences and such uh, makes good sense. It, it, that will be a less good guide the more hyper-novel your environment is. Um, but just as we talked about with regard to fruit, you know, if it smells good to you, if it, if it looks appealing and smells good and, uh, you know, feels good in the hand is less of a thing. But like if it feels ripe because you've eaten fruit before and you know what ripe tends to feel like, Uh, and you taste a little bit of it and it tastes sweet to you, still don't eat the whole thing all at once, right? But if you've got all these other sensory modalities telling you, you know what, this feels right, this feels good, Um, there's a really good chance that, that that is consistent with this is a fruit, this is the fruit of a plant that benefits when mammals eat the fruit and disperse the seeds, and therefore this is not going to hurt you because it was made effectively for you.
0: Right. And the ability to override your uh, intuitive sense of how something smells or tastes in the case that you have evidence that it might be all right anyway Mm -hmm. is important, too. So the point is you crash in the uh, forest in Indonesia with a crude model and then you use science to improve that model so that when you happen onto some durian, right? The point is you're not dissuaded by the fact that it smells bad you know from having watched a mammal eat it and then having tried it on your your own and feeling oh that was pretty good that that uh, satisfied me and it didn't make me sick mm-hmm. right the point is your model gets better and better you would become expert in your local habitat and how to deal with it and so yeah all right i think we're i think we're more or less there mm-hmm. the point is you've been misled the degree to which you think that science is about laboratories and uh, peer peer review and studious discussions and high tech equipment, and that to the extent that that thing, grant money, doesn't work, um, you're just shit out of luck. You have been lied to. The proper scientific thinking is a cultivated way of looking at the world, and you know I, I was reminded as I was thinking about us doing this exercise that we actually did a podcast back in Portland in which we talked about this and we said, look, you misunderstood science. For us, we are much more likely to be doing science in rubber boots with machetes than we are to be in a laboratory or looking through a microscope. It doesn't make it less scientific. The point is, it's the same mental process Mm -hmm. being deployed in a very different scenario, one in which you cannot drive all of the noise out that's what a laboratory is is a noise remover that allows you to focus in on a phenomenon
1: and that predicts maybe that field biologists regardless of whether they think about evolution or geology or ecology or whatever might actually be better suited to the complexity of something like a novel coronavirus and a novel set of vaccines and repurposed treatments and a political response, then laboratory scientists might be because laboratory science is precisely about reducing the number of variables so that when you get a result, you're more and more confident that it's because of the thing that you manipulated, whereas field science, can not have most of its variables controlled. So you get accustomed to the the, the practice of engaging in field science is one in which you have to figure out on your own, what of the vast amount of noise that I'm experiencing is actually the pattern that I should be honing in on? And what of it might be relevant, but not right now? And what of it is not what it seems? And also I can ignore it.
0: Right, and um, so the laboratory is very good at removing the noise, which allows you to see very subtle principles.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get, you, you often get greater precision.
0: You do, Yeah, you do. Um, and sometimes you need that precision mm-hmm. in order to see some very subtle contributor to a process. Right. The point is when somebody says, um, I would like to inject you with this liquid, which contains some mRNA messages, which are gonna hijack a certain number of your cells, And it's going to cause them to produce a fragment of a pathogen. And the hope is that that is going to make you immune if you encounter that pathogen because it's a a bad one, right? The point is, which is the better model here? The purified laboratory where the point is, oh, the only things going on in my experiment are those tiny few things that I allow to be there. Or what the fuck did you just say? You're going to eat. Have you ever tested this on a person? Have you ever, do you have a successful such a vaccine? based on this technology that you've ever deployed in a human being?
1: How many of those causal links that you said with authority are actually black boxes in which you're kind of crossing your fingers behind your back going like, I really hope it works the way we say it does. Um, but the fact is that we can't possibly have the level of certainty that we claim to, which right away tells anyone who is watching you make the claims, okay, you are at the very least overstating what you know. Right. Why would you be overstating what you know? Let's figure out what you actually could know and see if you're ever saying some of the things which you could know. Huh. Also not saying some of the things that you definitely should know at this point. What else is inconsistent? And on it
0: goes. Right. And so, you know, the straightforward argument is, look, you are talking about introducing something novel to my physiology as if you understand my physiology, which I know you don't. Nobody understands my physiology. Not because
1: I'm special, but because human physiology is complex.
0: It's mostly black boxes. We're very new at this. And the degree to which we understand is far outstripped by the degree to which we do not yet understand. And so the point is you're talking about intervening and it's every bit as idiotic as if you walked into a tropical forest and said, let me explain to you how this place works. The answer is, oh, are you from the future? Because nobody (laughs) in the present knows how this thing works, right? We know certain things, but we do not know how this works. And so anyway...
1: And yet, and yet we can apply a scientific understanding of the world and of the forest to have a better chance of surviving a plane crash there than if we said, well, if I don't have, you know, if science doesn't already know exactly what's going on here, I guess I'll just lay down and die. Like, those are two extreme responses, neither of which is savvy or smart or wise.
0: Yeah. Now, if we ever do find this scenario unfolding, the first thing I'm going to say to you at the point that we wrestle ourselves free of the...
1: Somehow, miraculously, mostly unscathed, even though everyone else is dead, okay? That's
0: what I'm shooting for. If that happens, right, the first thing (laughs) I'm going to say to you is, well, welcome to complex systems. (laughs)
1: It probably is, yes. Yes. Okay, welcome to complex systems. Here Welcome to
0: complex systems.
1: Here we are. Um cool. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. I think we're there. I think we're there. We will be back next week. And uh next week we'll have a QA. We're not gonna do one this week. We encourage you to uh, you know, check out a Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the Twenty First Century because a lot of what we were just talking about is either in there or or, or this discussion was highly relevant to the toolkit that we, that we introduced
0: there. And if you are thinking it is too late, no, most of the 21st century still lies ahead. There's plenty of time to get that book, read it, think about what's in it, and you can deploy it scientifically as you deal with your own plane crash scenario.
1: Let me be honest with yourselves. If you're watching this and paying attention, what are the chances that you survive into the 22nd century? Pretty low, right? Wow. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean I think our, our producer here, our son, who was born in two thousand four, should uh should definitely shoot for that. Shoot but for it. it's yeah. uh I'm it's not be too disappointed if I am. Yeah, so for for, for the vast majority all. of our audience, it's not gonna happen. Sorry. Uh, so you know, check out a hunter gatherer's guide to the twenty first century. Also, it's true that a Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the Twenty Second Century probably most of the same things will apply (laughs)
0: even more so (laughs)
1: yes it'll be hyper hyper novelty uh if if we're still around and uh we'd like for that to be the case not us individually but humanity doing what humans do when we're at our best largely with the help of the dogs okay until we see you next time be good to the ones you love eat good food and get outside
0: be well everyone